Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motzen. I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the prophets, and here we have our second discussion on Daniel chapter 7. As always, we do invite you to take a look at the show notes, specifically our YouTube channel, where we are right now in the middle of a series walking through the Sermon on the Mount with Peter Lightheart. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Daniel chapter 7. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James Bijan. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and uh, he'll be editing and smoothing everything out, uh, putting together the little fragments of, uh, of coherent speech that we utter during the course of the next hour, uh, and making us all look really good on the finished product. We're in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Daniel, uh, we've gotten through the first half of the book, which uh, contain all the narrative portions of Daniel. Uh, and last episode, we started looking at Daniel 7, which is, uh, I, I suggested it's a kind of Janus chapter. That is, it's like the god Janus who has is facing two different directions. Uh, in one sense, Daniel 7 is reaching back to the earlier part of the book. It matches in content of the second chapter, which is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it matches in language uh, chapters two through six, which are all in Aramaic. It's the last of the Aramaic chapters. So it, it goes with the first half of the book in those respects. And yet it's the beginning of a series of visions that Daniel sees. Uh, and he's going to be, as we talked about in the last episode, he's the sole visionary. Uh, the three friends are not present. Um, he doesn't interact directly with kings as he did in the previous stories. Uh, so it's Daniel by himself as a lone visionary. And he records the visions that he sees at different times. First of all, a couple of visions that he sees during the Babylonian era of his work and then during the Persian era of his work. Uh, So we started looking at Daniel 7. We looked at the first half or so of the chapter, and we kind of danced around the the big issue of this chapter, which is the fourth beast. The fourth beast, Daniel sees a vision of beasts coming out of the sea. These are Gentile powers that are coming out of the Sea of Gentiles. And it's a lion, a a bear, a leopard, and then an undescribable something, some horrible beast that comes up as the fourth beast. And we identify the first three beasts as Babylon, Medo-Persia, and then Greece. That left the fourth beast. But that was was deliberate. We decided not to discuss that in the first uh, part of this discussion because there's so much of the chapter is devoted to the fourth beast. We, We have... Uh, only a verse description of each of the other beasts in the first part of the chapter, but two verses, two long verses, verses seven and eight, that are devoted to the to the fourth beast. And then after the midway point of the chapter, after uh, after Daniel receives a general interpretation of the vision from one of the uh, a member of the the host that's in the heavenly court scene, he receives a, a general interpretation. But then he wants to know more about the fourth beast, so he asks in verse nineteen what is with the fourth beast? And he gets an interpretation of the fourth beast. Actually, he, he first of all describes again, verses 19 through 22, he asks the question, what is this fourth beast about? But in when in asking the question, he's describing the fourth beast all over again and actually adding some information that we didn't see in the earlier vision. Uh, verse 21, for example, he mentions that the horn that comes up 
among the 10 horns, there's an 11th horn that comes up and displaces three horns. And that begins to wage war against the saints and overpower them. That wasn't part of the original vision uh, early in the chapter, but that's added when Daniel describes the vision again. So there's several verses where he's dis- he's asking the question, what, what is this fourth beast about? But he's reviewing all the information we already know about the fourth beast and adding some. And then verses 23 through 27, the last section of the chapter is the uh, this an- angel, this watcher's interpretation of the fourth beast and of the horn. So the last half of the chapter really is uh, uh, gives us an interpretation, overall framework for the whole vision, but the focus really is on the fourth beast. And so that's, and I think that that's, uh, it's not only for that reason that we're devoting an entire episode to trying to understand that that character or that uh, image, but also because of the, the difficulty and the, the variety of different opinions that have been offered about the fourth beast. There are different opinions about the other three beasts, but there's, uh, I think the the fourth beast is the one that has the the most is the most uh, contention about it, uh, and that includes contention about the identity of the ten horns uh, and uh, of the little horn that fly, that comes up among the ten horns. Uh, just to get us started uh, with the second half of the chapter, I wanted to highlight a couple of things about the general interpretation that's given in verses sixteen through seventeen. This is. Uh, Daniel approaches one of those who are standing, the kind of priestly angels that are standing around the throne, and asks for an interpretation of the uh, anim- of the vision. And he's told that uh, a couple of things. One is that the beasts represent kings. That's verse seventeen. They're going to rise from the earth, uh, and then uh, the the dominion and power, the kingdom is going to be given over to the saints of the highest ones. That's the overall interpretation of what Daniel has seen. And I think one of the key uh, elements of that interpretation is the shift that we seem to have from what looks like a singular character, the son of man who receives dominion and power. That's what Daniel sees in verses 13 and 14. But when the angel interprets that, he interprets that son of man figure corporately. That son of man receiving the kingdom and possessing the kingdom forever is not just, or maybe not even primarily an individual figure who's being coronated, but it's the saints of the highest one or the the exalted saints or the saints of the high place, the holy ones of the high place. However, we interpret that. It's talking about, I think it's talking about the church. It's not talking about angelic holy ones, but the church, the people of God are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom. So that shift from the individual figure of the son of man to the corporate reality of the inheritance of the kingdom by the saints, that's reiterated at the end of the chapter, verse 27. So the the chapter, the the vision really is not, not just about Jesus, that's our instinct, and it's true. Jesus is the Son of Man who received king, the kingdom, but Jesus shares his kingdom with his people, and that's what we're seeing here in this vision. Your point, Peter, that the Son of Man stands both for Jesus and his people is actually consistent with Daniel's use of language generally, isn't it? So the fourth beast, for instance, in verse 23, is um, is a kingdom. It's a whole kingdom, but earlier in verse um where is it, 17 perhaps, um, we're told that the um, four beasts are four kings. And there is just that dual sense to all of it, isn't, isn't there? The first beast, in a sense, it's Nebuchadnezzar. It's got lots of his characteristics, but in a sense, it's it's all Babylon. And so what we're seeing with the Son of Man is, is consistent with Daniel's por- portrayal of kingdoms in general. I agree with, I agree with you, James. <laughs> well, maybe a comment about perspective that we're going to take to interpret this fourth kingdom, these 
fourth king. And that is, shouldn't, should we, I mean, it's a question, I guess. Should we assume that scripture is going to be able to interpret scripture here and that we should have this explained somewhere else, especially um, in the New Testament for us, uh, and not think of this as some kind of futuristic prediction about something in modern times. I, I went back yesterday afternoon and looked at my old books, dispensational books. In the late 70s, I was a pretty raving dispensationalist. Um, and so I went back and looked at like Walvert and, and Ryrie and even Hal Lindsey about this. And of course, for them, this fourth kingdom is a revived Roman empire uh, in, in some sense in modern times. And so what they do is they will look for evidence of these sorts of things that are said about the king and the kingdoms and the, and the little horn in, in newspaper, do newspaper kind of exegesis. Um, so I was looking at Charles Ryrie. He has a book called The Bible in Tomorrow's News. And he thinks or he thought at the time that this was all about the European common market um, <laughs> as being the, a precursor to the revival of some kind of Roman empire. Um, I think as, as we look at this, surely we are thinking that this corresponds in large measure to the drama played out in the book of Revelation, where Jesus ascends uh, into, the, into heaven as the Son of Man receives a kingdom from his Father, then sets in motion a series of events that will end with the saints receiving the kingdom. Of course, Jesus is the head, we're the body, he's the husband, we're the bride, and all of that seems to have been played out. So that, for us, it seems, it seems to me anyway, almost impossible that we cannot take this fourth kingdom to be something in the in the first century, something uh, either the Romans or the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests or the Herods or or something. And if and if we have that perspective, I think we're going to, even if we don't get it exactly right, we won't get it entirely wrong with uh, speculative predictions about modern times. I think that point that we need to read it in terms of what we see within the New Testament is really important on details like the Ten Kings, for instance, those appear in um, chapter 17 of Revelation, which will help us to interpret what those horns mean. Likewise, we have things like references to the Son of Man at several points in the New Testament that are clearly working with the background of Daniel chapter 7. Indeed, it's one of the most important texts, one could argue, for New Testament understandings of Christ. He is the Son of Man. And understanding both the original text in terms of its interpretation in the New Testament and seeing the way that the New Testament itself is working in the context of a larger tradition of reading this text in a messianic sense. Um, the more that we study into testamental literature and um, pseudepigraphical and other works, we have a sense that these readings, people were already converging on these sorts of messianic readings. And so the New Testament is not reading it in a completely unprecedented sense, but rather it's giving us a vantage point 
from which to go back to the original text and make a lot more sense of it because we've seen the details not just on the far distant horizon but close up and we've seen them fulfilled in Christ and also we've seen them um, unpacked in more detail, particularly in Revelation. Yeah, I agree with Jeff and Alistair both and I I agree with your reading of Revelation and Revelation is clearly relevant. I think the the key thing, one of the key things about Revelation is the claim at the beginning and end of the book that the things that John sees are things that must shortly take place. And then among the things that John sees are uh, beasts like the beasts of Daniel 7. So I think that that's a that's an important, important key. I think the couple of things I want to say is caution. One is, um, I mean, we, we do run the risk of trying to interpret the obscure by the incomprehensible. So um, you're, in the, you're in a situation where both of the passages are sub- susceptible to multiple interpretations. I mean, there are people that have different interpretations of both the fourth beast in Daniel 7 and of the beasts of Revelation. Things do kind of stand, in, those two stand and fall together, but they, they, aren't, um, they aren't undisputed. The other, the other thing I wanted to point out is that we need to be careful about the we when we're talking about the, uh, the interpretation of the fourth beast, because I know that James has written, this is some years ago, so I don't know if James has modified his position at all, but he's written in in defense of a view that the fourth beast is not identical to Rome. Though, I, as I understand you, James, uh, you're, you say that uh, the fourth beast is Satan's kingdom, but Satan's kingdom does come to manifestation in some parts, in some uh, aspects of Roman history. But it's a it's a it's a kingdom that continues to the present. And so you're still reading a, a good bit of the of this um, passage as in a futurist sense, as, as I understood your argument. So I want to give you a chance to present your argument so we can beat up on you. I mean, that's the point of this whole podcast is to gang up on James today. <laughs> if he's not already changed his mind, we hope that he will do so by the end of the <laughs> <That's> episode. <right. laughs> At present, I stand by every word I've written. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can maybe you can summarize your arguments for seeing seeing not seeing the fourth beast as Rome. What's what what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I'll have to um, try to remind myself of them. Um, I mean, I'm, um, I don't think I would um, uh, come into Jeff's uh, classification of a, of a raving dispensationalist, um, but perhaps I could be like a, mo- a moderate one <laughs> or something. I mean, um, part of my um, problem with making the fourth beast, uh, let's say, exhausted with Rome is that um, – one thing it requires is you, it requires you to go along with the whole um, hybrid idea, I think, so um, that the four beasts are not just um, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and, and then whatever is next, but are sort of the Babylonians together with the Jews or with the Jews within them or, or, or something like that. As far as I understand, I mean, jump in if, if that's a mischaracterization of, of the view. Um, and part of that is because you, you need to have the thing end in, in the first century, and obviously Rome outlives that. So you have this hybrid creature. Um, I mean, part of my problem with that is, is that I don't think that the text really portrays them in hybrid terms. And the things which the text does emphasize so the fact that Medo-Persia is you know lopsided or got two horns or that Greece is fourfold and 
comes on the scene very quickly, um, you know, bounding over the whole earth in, in, in one jump. These are really just features of Greece and Medo-Persia. They're, they're not particularly features of like some hybrid empire. And um, it seems to me that in at least verse 12 of this chapter where um, you have the fourth beast judged and then the rest of the um, beasts, their dominion is taken away, but their lives um, are prolonged in some way for a season and a time. For me, that works quite well if you say that the fourth beast is some satanic empire, basically something which is equivalent with the world as the New Testament talks about it and lying under the control of, of the wicked one. And I think we probably agree that it's, it's identical with the world in, in that sense. Um, so if that gets destroyed and then if various empires like Greece and Babylon live on into some age where Christ is, is king, that kind of works fine, I think. If those first three beasts are sort of hybrid empires, I'm, I'm not quite sure how that how that pans out. And, um, I mean, I've got, I've got a big list of reasons, but why, why don't I, I, I stop there and, and you can <laughs> shout at me. I think one thing that can be helpful here is when we get to Revelation, we see that there is this sea beast appearing again, but behind the sea beast is the dragon. And the dragon has many of the characteristics of the sea beast, which he produces. And then the sea beast produces a land beast. And so, although we've only got one beast here, we've got three beasts in Revelation, and those beasts resemble each other in various respects. They share characteristics. And we can, I think, connect the dragon with Satan and his agency behind the sea beast. And the land beast would seem to be associated with some forces within Israel itself. And so I think that hybrid approach we don't actually need to take that hybrid approach when we get to revelation it gives us a way of looking at this sea beast in which both the dragon behind him the satanic agency in his kingdom and on the other hand the land beast that he produces are both implicated yeah i was going to say the same thing i think the the revelation 13 has the sea beast which is a leopard primarily but then it has features of bear-like features and lion-like features. So it's clearly a composite of the beasts that uh, the first three beasts of uh, Daniel seven. And I think that is the, that is the fourth beast that's coming up from the sea. Uh, but it's summoned by Satan. I think that the, the transition that I see happening there and the thing that's shortly to take place for John is not the rise of Roman power. John's already under Roman power. Israel's already under Roman power during the time of Jesus. It's the, um, the uh, demonification of Roman power. We pointed this out in our studies in, in Acts repeatedly that uh, Rome is regularly defending the church during the first decades of the church's history, de defending them against Jews. And the, the turning point that's happening in Revelation is not that Rome is rising in power, but that Rome gets, uh, gets under the grip of Satan. And it's allied with, as Alistair was saying, it's allied with the land beast, which is a spokesman for the sea beast, a propagandist for the sea beast. And I, I think the, um, the, the, we don't have an exact correlation between the horn that's speaking great things here and the, the land beast, but I think there's a general correlation because in both cases you have the um, 
a sea beast and then another figure who speaks. And that's what the land beast is doing. The land beast is a false prophet. And you have the horn that arises here in Daniel 7 seems to be uh, fulfilling the same role. And I'll also say one last comment before before I stop. I, th- I think the, the overall setting, I mean, may- maybe this is, you're saying this is would be the hybrid position that you're contesting. But I think the whole setting of Daniel and of the uh, exilic period is uh, is a hybrid system. That's what that's what uh, that's what God has established. I pointed this out in the last episode that it's an Israel within empire. That's that's the way the political world is organized, and I believe that's what's actually being that's what's collapsing in the Book of Revelation. It's not about Revelation, not just about the fall of Jerusalem. It's about the fall of this what Jim Jordan calls the Orichimene, the entire uh, the entire imperial system that includes Israel centrally within it, that whole system is what's collapsing in Revelation. A question for you, James. Um, are you? Did you say, and I might have misheard you, that you thought that this fourth beast uh, was not uh, destroyed and continues on in some sense? I mean, I, I see it as in existence now, yeah. Okay, I'm wondering then, you know, what you do with the statements in Revelation 19 where the beast is captured along with the false prophet, and they're, they're both thrown into the lake of fire. And it seems as if uh, the beast is destroyed, or at least uh, defeated in Revelation 19. And if this beast uh, in Daniel 7 is the same as the beast in Revelation, that, you know, that seems to fit more with the understanding that this is this hybrid system uh, that's turned out to be a persecutor and a, uh, an enemy of the people of God being judged here in Revelation 19. Right. I mean, and I, and I would say Revelation 19 is, is future as well. Um, is that what you're asking? Or Oh, okay. All right. Well, okay, then that, that makes sense. Okay. In, in your in your. Not so raving dispositionalist position. <laughs> in, in James, in James's mistaken perspective, it does make sense. It's it's a coherent, although erroneous <laughs> position. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, if 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 you're going to be wrong, you want to be consistently wrong, yes, don't you? Exactly right. <laughs> I think I think that the point you made uh, the point you made, James, about uh, verse twelve in Daniel seven, I think is an is a is an intriguing one. I mean, it's a, it is an odd thing that uh, there's a the beast is slain according to verse 11. And that seems to be referring to the fourth beast. That's where the judgment seems to be targeted in verse 11. It's it's not all the beasts together. It's just the one beast. And then the other beasts, which seem to be the first three, uh, they're continuing on for a period of time. A couple of things that I, uh, a couple of ways, one problem I have, and then one alternative interpretation. Uh, the problem I have with that is that that seems to mean that the elevation of the Son of Man to receive the dominion and the kingdom and uh, power, that elevation is is also still future. That the Son of Man does not yet have uh, authority and dominion, which seems that seems to me to be uh, contradicted by a host of not just Revelation, but a host of New Testament passages that talk about Jesus gaining all dominion, authority, and power over all, uh, and is exalted above every name that it's named. So, um, wonder wonder how you handle that. The other the alternative interpretation is. That um, uh, what what Jim Jordan does with that briefly, unfortunately, he doesn't ex- have an extensive interpretation. But the 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 horn becomes like a fourth beast. It has eyes. It has a mouth. It's functioning 
as almost like a it's a it's a kind of anti son of man. It's an alternative to the son of man, who's uh, speaking great things, and that's what's slain. So he becomes like a fourth, like a fifth beast, and his body is destroyed. And the rest of the beasts would include the uh, the beasts, uh, not just the three beasts, but the fourth beast. The other another alternative would be. Again, going back to my understanding of Revelation 13, what's happening there is that Rome is being infused with satanic zeal for against the saints. And insofar as that, that Rome is destroyed, but that's not Rome as such. That's just the satanic Rome that's being, that's being defeated. Uh, and then it's among the beasts that are continued on for... Um, so the rest of the beasts would include the first three in Daniel 7, but that would include... The, the kind of leopard-like part of Rome, the, the Greek part of Rome that, uh, that preceded the, uh, the, its uh, subjection to Satan. I don't know if that last, that last part makes sense, but I think there are alternatives to understanding verses 11 and 12 that don't require us to, to think of the destruction of the, the that the, that the uh, uh, dominion of the fourth beast is ongoing. But, I, I, but my first question, I'm, are, you, are you saying also that verses 13 and 14 are still future events? Um, no, I'm not. I mean, I see those as, as realities now, referring to Jesus's lordship over, over the present age. Um, and then I, I see the actual judgment of the fourth beast still to be future, you know. Okay. Maybe I could come back to, to one of Jeff's earlier comments. I think it's a genuine danger that in uh, in terms of having like a future view of some of this, you can be open to – yeah, going through newspapers and seeing if you can like map the EU onto the ten horns and and all this business and and that's been done and it, it hasn't been helpful, you know. Um, I I think probably an equal and opposite error the other way is that you can basically decide how you're going to view the chapter and then just have to trawl through Josephus in search of something, anything that kind of looks vaguely like it. And um, I mean, one of my examples of where I think that goes wrong is is, is with the ten horns. Um, it seems quite common in various commentaries I've looked at to identify the ten horns as this successive line of emperors, um, sort of Roman emperors generally. And um, it seems pretty clear to me that that's just not how Daniel uses the images of horns at all. You know, um, uh, these ten horns, like the two horns of Medo-Persia are uh, contemporaneous, you know, the the four horns which replace Alexander in terms of the goat are um, contemporaries. They're, they're uh, kingdoms, sub kingdoms which are coextensive with one another. Um, in Revelation, the ten kings give their power to the beast for one hour. So, um, and again, you, you get the um, in, impression that they're coextensive, which almost has to be the case for an eleventh horn to put down three of them um otherwise i mean it would just sort of put down the eighth wouldn't it and and so um uh i i think that kind of a lot of interpretation interpretations sorry um um kind of get in a little bit but not trying to find something that fits them in the first century yeah i agree that that's a that's a danger and i think certain preterist readings of both daniel and revelation end up doing kind of a first century version of that newspaper interpretation that Jeff was talking about. Uh, as far as the, as far as the horns point, uh, you know, it, I'd, I'd seen, you seem to be right about the specific imagery of horns, but if you look more broadly, then 
uh, Daniel is certainly capable of re- describing something that is chronologically successive as if it were one entity. I mean, that's, that is the corresponding vision uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees in Daniel 2. It's the, the, the same four empires, I, I, I believe, but they're described as a single statue with different materials. So that's one thing, even though it's something that's happening over the course of time. The general point is that Daniel is, does use imagery like that. It's doesn't um, the fact that you have a collection of something doesn't mean that they're they're simultaneous in every case. Um, the other another uh, I mean I don't I don't agree with this. I, I do think that the the idea that the empire, uh, emperors are being depicted by the horns I think that's uh, persuasive to me. Although I'm, I'm I'm open to other interpretations of it, but. Um, I think the other possibility that Calvin, Calvin suggested that the ten horns represent, possibly symbolically, not an actual number of powers, but like the horns of the, the different powers of Republican Rome. So you have distributed power among consuls and uh, senators and other centers of power within Republican Rome, and then he took the uh, the rise of the little horn to be the rise of the emperors. So you. Um, there's a there are preterist more preterist interpretations that that take the same view that these are simultaneous powers, but I don't again I don't think that's necessary because Daniel does have images that function as successive even though the image is simultaneous. What should we make of the way that the last beast seems to continue and carry on and also include in a sort of hybrid form the features of the previous beasts? What exactly is that representing or standing for? Why does it matter that these are not just successive kingdoms, but in some sense, cumulative powers? Yeah. Are you thinking specifically of the beast in Revelation 13 that has that's composite? Yes. I mean, why it matters isn't so clear to me, but it does seem just as a matter of history that when one empire conquers another, it inherits huge amounts of its well, I mean, obviously it's people, but also it's cultural, it's kind of infrastructure, etc. So it definitely seems to reflect a historical reality, doesn't it? Right. That's that was that's the way I um, dis- discuss it in my commentary on Revelation. That it's a, it's a, it's just a political reality that you have this culmination. But I think that um, I made this point a, a few minutes ago. But I think the the thing, the the dominant animal, the dominant beast in the Revelation sea beast is a leopard. It looks like a leopard, and then it has other features of the other animals. Which, if uh, if I'm interpreting that in terms of Daniel seven, then uh, I'm what the beast I'm looking at is uh, Hellenistic in 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 origin. It has its it's it's basically leopard like, which is Alexandrian Alexander and the uh, Hellenistic Empire. So I think that and that's historically accurate. That uh, the Rome arises culturally out of Greece. Um, Greece, of course, is interacting with uh, the the um, more eastern powers of Babylon and, and Persia, especially Persia. And so, uh, I think that the specifics of that beast highlight the Greek character of the early Roman world. And now, again, it's being it's being remade. It's being it's undergoing a makeover so that it becomes. Satanic, it becomes like the like the like the uh, dragon, uh, but it's fundamentally it's a it's a leopard. This may be too simplistic, but might it also be that the compositeness of this beast just reflects the theological 
reality of the exilic and post-exilic time uh, where uh, you have this new governmental arrangement. Uh, there's no Davidic kings, and uh, but rather these world em- emperors, and they all kind of run together in some sense because they're all part of the same setup. And it's that setup uh, that gets that gets judged um, in the book of Revelation and replaced by a new way of ordering humanity under the lordship of Jesus. Um, so you've had this way of ordering humanity since the exile under the lordship of these world emperors who are in some sense had these messianic kind of characteristics and even vocation. But of course, now Jesus becomes the new world emperor and there's a new arrangement. Uh, the, uh, the furniture is arranged in the human government so that now Jesus is. Uh, so all all these all these uh, emperor empires shared similar characteristics and fit into this time period, this restoration time period where God was doing uh, something different than he'd done before. Here's a suggestion that could run alongside that, I guess. I mean, maybe Daniel wants to emphasize just the way in which as world history unfolds, things do accumulate. I mean, that's just the nature of history. You don't just kind of at the start of a new century, wipe the slate clean and and start again. Um, Rather, there's a sense in which as time goes on, things genuinely are accumulating. Everything is a product of its past and those things are the products of their past and, and so forth. And then that can be true of Jesus's empire as well, that as Jesus comes, he, he doesn't just kind of push the button and destroy the universe and start again, but kind of inherits in a very real sense what's there and then begins to redeem and, and cleanse and, and, and reshape history. And maybe that's part of what's going on here. I think behind many of the things that are taking place in this chapter, we can see very much a fuller view of divine providence. We can often focus upon divine providence as if it were merely narrowly focused upon what happens in the life of Israel, its deliverance from Egypt, other events like that, and not thinking about the way that the wider world structure is being arranged and ordered. If we read about the things that happen to the beast, it's not so much things that they are doing themselves in many cases. These powers are given to them or taken from them. They are given particular properties or certain properties are removed. And the agency of God in world history really comes into sharp relief in this passage in a way that we don't necessarily see it to the same degree elsewhere in um, much of the Old Testament. It's there in the background, but here it's very clearly foregrounded. Right. Before we get too friendly with James, um, I wanted to go back to uh, <laughs> <laughs> interrogate him a little bit more. So um, going back to you answered my question um, you're, you're on the stand now. So I'm, I'm, rev- I'm, I'm reviewing your, uh, just yes or no, que- yes or no answers, please, sir. Um, <laughs> uh, you said that uh, you think 13 and 14 insofar as that's Christ ascending and being coronated. That's, that's already true. Jesus is the one who already has dominion over and authority over all kingdoms, peoples, and languages. That's already the case. But then it seems right. like on your reading, uh, the judgment against the beast in verses nine and 10 9 through 12, maybe, that's something that's still future, uh, which suggests that you're 
you're dividing between the two the the two court scenes. So verses nine and ten is a court scene where the Ancient of Days is taking a seat, and he's speaking a, a judgment of against the beast and slaying it. That's still future, uh, but the coronation of the Son of Man is already a present reality. I mean, just reading the reading the chapter in sequence, it looks like the judgment of the beast precedes the elevation of the Son of Man to receive his kingdom. And that that's, uh, it seems like you're disconnecting those events and then you're inverting the order that's in the text. Is, am, I, am I understanding what you're saying correctly? Yeah, that, that's how I'm, I'm reading it. Yeah, so I'm not reading it in a strictly chronological way. Um, part of that, I would derive from just literary markers in the text. So kind of as verse six starts, you get this sort of after this. And so mm-hmm. I think that clearly sort of uh, continues from verse five. Again, the start of verse seven, you get an, an after this, you know, um, and so that clearly continues from verse six. Um, but then you, you don't get any more um, after this is rather in verse um, 13, you get this, I saw in the night visions. Um, and so these night visions are mentioned again. And I kind of take that to couple it together with the last I saw in the night visions, which is verse seven. And that's where I kind of textually, that's where I get this idea that that um, heavenly reign of the son of man is um, parallel with the, with the fourth beast in, um, uh, in, in chronological terms, at least. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem, again, it seems smoother to me to, um, I understand, I, I get your, the markers there. I don't think that is forceful enough to affect what seems to be the, the, uh, you know, the straight textual order of fourth beast appears, fourth beast is judge, son of man inherits the kingdom. So the fourth, be- fourth beast being judged is the premise for the son of man, it's it's the it's the taming of the beast that uh, enables the son of man to take dominion and the kingdom. The other thing I wanted to the other question I wanted to raise is you're taking verses thirteen and fourteen as coronation of the son of man and applied to Jesus. Uh, that's already true, but verse eighteen takes that as I, I, I take it that verse eighteen, verses seventeen and eighteen are an interpretation of the entire vision, and the uh, angel who's interpreting it for Daniel is interpreting the son of man as the saints of the highest one who receive kingdom, a kingdom, which seems to make that reception of the kingdom and dominion over the nations uh, by the saints simultaneously with simultaneous with the son of man's inheritance, of the kingdom um, that those two things are, are connected. Uh, my understanding of what, of your, of your essay on this chapter uh, was that Jesus is reigning uh, Jesus has dominion, and the saints are in some. It was a little vague to me what exactly what sense it was, but the saints are in some way reigning. Ephesians two six, in a two, Ephesians two six sense, we're in heavenly places with him. But yet the reception of the saints of that dominion over the nations, it seemed to be you meant uh, you, you were saying that that's still that also is still a future uh, future conferral on the saints. Is that is that how you're understanding it? Yeah, I guess I'm seeing it as a present reality, which kind of gets um, established more concretely in a, in a way to come. Um, I mean, I, I thought that was large. So I may have misunderstood your view on this, but um, I thought that was largely how 
you were seeing it. I mean, if I look at sort of verse 21 and 22, the horn makes war with the saints and, and prevails over them, it seems, um, until the ancient of days comes. And so it feels to me that there's this big sea change which takes place um, when the ancient of days does finally come. I take that to be sort of come come to the earth, I guess. Um, and I'm I'm wondering kind of where where that goes. So I have that um, as a yet future event. Where, where would you have that taking place, Peter? Yeah, well, I think that's the I, – I mean, that's uh, – verse 22 is Daniel's uh, re- recapitulation summary of the vision of the fourth beast. I think that is the scene that's mm. taking place in verses 9 and 10. And I think that's the judge. That's a judgment on the beast that's uh, described in, in Revelation. I'm taking Revelation, the judgment on the beast, as Jeff was, as something that takes place within the first century. Uh, and again, I'm taking the beast as uh, the Roman Empire, as satanically gripped by Satan, as a tool of Satan. Also, the Roman Empire as a uh, as an apostate from its vocation as an empire as part of the oikumene. So th- it's not the Roman Empire in general. It's the Roman Empire in that particular role. That's judged. And then the saints inherit the kingdom. That's the, that's the millennium. The martyrs rule during the millennium. Uh, I think that the millennium begins with the end of the oikumene. And for 2,000 years, virtually 2,000 years, we've been in a situation where the saints are uh, have been given the kingdom. Uh, and just just as the reign of Jesus is real, but not fully realized, I mean, I agree. I agree with that. Uh, Jesus' kingdom is not fully acknowledged, and yet it's real. I would say the same thing about the reign of the saints. Uh, we we have authority. We've been given authority. That's already we already uh, possess that, but it's not fully realized on earth. We have authority in heaven, but that's being realized on earth over the course of the church's history during the millennial era, which I think. Uh, is the period that we've been in since the first century. So is it fair then to say that there is no great sea change for you that takes place with the arrival of the ancient of days? I mean, if I'm like in the first century, uh, I mean, I could get martyred by the Romans in 60 AD or in 80 AD or 90 AD, and I can have spiritual authority as one of God's people in 60 AD or, or 80 or 90 kind of. So like, am I, caricaturing your view of that to say that you've got no real great sea change that takes place yes you are caricaturing it james i'm <laughs> <laughs> caricaturing it for me then. yeah it's <laughs> I, i'm not saying that there's no great sea change i'm i'm uh, asking or raising the question I'm, I'm specifying what the nature of that sea change is and part of it is the end of this or ecumenical era Part of it is the end of a world that's that's based around the temple, that's that's organized with the temple as the umbilicus mundi, as the center of things. Uh, that's the great sea change, and that happens in the first century. So yeah, there's a sea change, but it's it's past. Uh, that's different from saying I'm, I'm not a full preterist. I don't believe that everything has happened already. I think Jesus is going to return. There's still a final judgment. There's still a final perfected new creation that's going to come. But I think we're already in a situation where the saints have been given the kingdom because the Ancient of Days has already judged in our favor. I think when we're reading the text that way, it actually leads to um, a far stronger form of 
far stronger arguments for realization, for instance, of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. So many people try and cut off the um, fulfillment in the first century AD at some point, maybe early chapter 25. They're looking for a transition text. But when we go through Matthew 25, it seems very clear that Daniel chapter 7 is in the background. For instance, when we come to the great judgment scene, and when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. I mean, that's pure Daniel 7, gathering the nations, separating them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and then telling the righteous to enter into the kingdom. So on the one hand, that that seems to present us with a position of fulfillment of that text within the first century, where it pushes preterists partial preterists, as I would be, to argue for that. And on the other hand, it presents us with a challenge. I mean, that would suggest a far greater change than many would be thinking in terms of occurring within the first century. I think an argument can be made, a strong argument, for this being fulfilled in the first century, that there is a um, the beginning of a more general judgment among sorting out of the nations that occurs after the fall of Jerusalem, there's a new world order established. And I would see this maybe more as a progressive thing over history since, but the kingdoms are being handed over into the hands of the saints as the nations are being divided by virtue of their response to Christ. So what would be this horn, which suppose I, I have lived through the period sort of 60 through to 80 AD or something. What, what what is this horn which did make war with me at one point and prevail over me and which now no longer has dominion over me? Or should I not be looking for something like that in the first place? Well, I think that there are a couple of different ways to take that. And, and I'm, uh, I'm uncertain about uh, specifics of identifying that. I, I think that uh, Jim Jordan's suggestion that uh, the Herods fit the fit that description, uh, not as, and, and he, he has, he, um, kind of, uh, uh, admittedly massages some of what, uh, verses seven and eight say about the horns work, but I think it's, it's a plausible interpretation. Uh, the Herods don't conquer any of the Caesars. He takes the 10 horns as being, um, a succession of Roman empire emperors. Uh, the little horn that arises displaces three horns not because it overthrows them, but because it begins to exercise authority specifically in the the land, in the Holy Land, and begins to persecute the saints, the Herods and the uh, and the associated scribes and Sadducees and so on who are persecuting the saints in the land. Uh, they're not they're not uh, conquering Roman emperors, but they're taking the role of Roman emperors and they're exercising authority within the land over the course of several different uh, emperors. So I think Herod would fit the bill. Uh, I suggested a kind of general correlation between the, the horn and the land beast. The land beast is, a, a, I think, a, again, I wouldn't uh, uh, specify what the land beast represents uh, to a person exactly. But I think the, the land beast does, because it arises from the land, it represents a power within the land rather than a power that's coming from the sea. And it represents a uh, propaganda, propagandist for the empire, for the satanic empire within the Holy Land, uh, that is among Jews. 
it represents those um, Jews who have allied with Rome in the persecution of Christians. And again, I think that's one of the key things that is uh, shortly to take place when John sees the visions. This is one of the things that's going to happen up until that point, um, from what we see in the book of Acts, it's largely Jews who've been persecuting the church. Now the Jews are going to enlist the Romans, and so the church is going to be persecuted by the same uh, the same alliance of powers of Jews and Romans who persecuted Jesus and put him to death. That's col- that's that's what's in that's what's in the near future for John. So um, I think that the little horn again for those reasons, I'm, it's plausible to me that it represents a a Jewish power that's uh, that's persecuting the saints. Right. I mean. It kind of feels like a bit of a hollow victory, though. In the, I mean, that particular power can't persecute me anymore, but I can still get kind of slaughtered by a Roman emperor or something. Well, yeah, but I think the the sea change, the sea change. We put it this way: the sea change is what's happening in heaven. Well, that's the key, right? Satan is cast out, and uh, that that does mean that he's more of a danger on earth because in you know, Revelation twelve, he's cast out and he immediately begins persecuting the woman. Uh, but he's no longer in heaven, which means he's no longer in that position of authority that he had in the old covenant. Instead, and and even the angels by the end of Revelation, the angels aren't the ones who are crowned and enthroned; it's the saints. So, uh, yeah, you can still get persecuted. Uh, you can still be put to death uh, for your faith. In fact, that's that's a constant where we follow a crucified Messiah. That's a constant of the history of the church. Uh, but the saint, the the martyrs are crowned, and that's a victory. Um, and it means a, a an an ex, a extension or a uh, um, it's a it's an extension of the reign of the heavenly of the heavenly martyrs. Uh, so, yeah. So it, it I don't think that's a hollow victory. I think it, it's a it's it's a fundamental shift because it's a it's a shift of what's happening in the control center, which is heaven. I think along with that, if we look back at the Old Testament and see the way that death is described in places like Ecclesiastes or the Psalms and in Job, death is really does seem to be a terminus um, to a far greater degree than it is within the New Covenant. It's presented as this shadowy realm that people go to, and it's the end of worship even in some cases. It's the end of um, the affairs of life. It's a place where... Um, whatever existence continues is very muted compared to what we see on earth. And yet in the new covenant, as a result of Christ's ascension and his victory over the grave, the saints are raised up to be with him. And even when they're martyred, they can say with Paul that it is better in many ways for them to to die and to be with Christ than to continue in the flesh. There is such a sea change that has occurred in that control center that it completely changes the coordinates of how we think about our losses here on earth. And of course, that victory in heaven is something that's going to be worked out ever more fully on earth itself. But that victory at the very heart is not something to be underestimated or understated. And I think in the New Testament, we can so easily treat um, a sort of individual eschatology as this timeless thing. And so we're looking for the doctrine of the idea that individuals are going to be resurrected in the Old Testament as just part of its standard 
individual eschatology. But that's something I think that's more tied with what Christ brings about. He delivers the Old Testament saints from Sheol and raises up the saints from beneath the altar to the heavenly places. And there is a complete change in the way that the people of God stand relative to death. And so when we look at our situation on earth, there is a confidence that we can have that we would never have prior to that ascension. That's a fascinating observation about the dominance of death in the old world. And again, just talking about how this change is sea change, that dominance, that reign of death is also ritualized and codified so that the law brings death, as Paul says, and all the rituals of the old world, whether tabernacle or temple, it's always about death. And the symbolic pressure is exclusion, is banishment. Uh, You're outside. You got all these boundaries, holy of holy, most holy place, holy place, you know, inside the tabernacle, the holy land. And God is, God is, uh, is in the midst of that, but you're, you're outside, which is a kind of death. You're, you're not in the presence of the living God and all the blood and all the death and all the sacrifice and all the, the laws of ritual purity. Well, when Jesus takes a throne and transforms the world, that's, that's a huge thing that there's no more temple, there's no more altar, there's no more sacrifices, there's no more blood, there's no more mosaic law, not in the sense of at least the ritual portions of it. And you live through that, you live through a monumental kind of ritual transformation. And now in the church, it's all about life. I mean, we come to a table, the death has already happened. We have bread and wine on the table. Uh, we don't have a bloody carcass and the death has happened and we get to eat bread and drink wine uh, and Jesus is alive and we're alive in him. I mean, even the symbolic and ritual change within the church reflects how different things are now than they were before the destruction of Jerusalem and before the whole old world geography and ritual uh, structure was done away with. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.